0: I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Susan Irick. For more than a quarter century, Dr. Irick has lived with rescued wild animals using her degrees in biology and psychology to explore the potential relationships we can have with other species. She founded the field of reconnection ecology as an approach to solving our current ecological crises. Today, we're going to talk about Whispers from the Wild and Invitation, stories from rescued wild animals of Earthfire Institute. So first off, thank you for your work in the world. And second, thanks for being on the program. My pleasure. So, what I, I guess I was going to ask you to talk about the book, but can you, uh, before you talk about the book, can you give us a brief introduction to the Earth Fire Institute and then move from there to begin talking about the book?
1: Yeah. So, some 30 years ago or so, I was invited to raise some wolf puppies and fell hopelessly in love and dropped everything. I was a happy, successful psychologist in the prisons, actually, which I loved. And um, fell in love with the wolf puppies and said, I need to share this with the world. I need to share who they are with the world. And from there, I discovered that that connection was possible with every species. So the um, I found some land right near um, Grand Teton National Park, somehow managed to pay for it, and founded Earthfire but well, the basic mission is to expand our sense of community to truly include all living beings because i think that's the way forward not just out of our environmental problems but to a joyous life for humans i mean there's so much miraculous wonderful absolutely miraculous life around us and we get so wrapped up in ourselves and everything that we lose track and we focus on the negative instead of the beauty that's around us so i founded a nonprofit um earth fire which is named after one of the seven original wolf puppies that i fell in love with
0: so how did you um how 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 did you get the puppies and how did that and how did that uh i know this is a stupid question but how did you fall in love with them
1: (laughs) it is a stupid question (laughs) um someone i had recently met invited me he he was training animals, wild animals for movies, and he had wolf puppies. He invited me to help raise them. It wasn't part of my life at all. But I don't know about you, but if you get an invitation to help raise wolf puppies, I mean, I wasn't going to say no. <laughs> so um, that's how it, they weren't my puppies originally. Um, how do you fall in love with them? Um you're holding this vibrant bundle of life, that's pure wolfness, um, and you're you're holding it because you're bottle feeding it, and you're feeling its vibrancy, and you're feeling its wolfness, and you're giving it nutrition, and you feel it sucking down the nutrition in a in a passionate bid for life, and it it forms a bond that's irrevocable. I mean, that bond was there until the last wolf died at age 17. Um, and the, and the, there's a flow, an, inter, an interconnection that happens when you connect deeply with an animal. And a lot of people know this, I'm sure, with their dogs or their cats or their horses. Um, there's a flow that's established that, that enriches both of you, and the bond is just irrevocable. Um, how do you fall in love with it, your dog or your cat? It's not that different, except for... The fact that we've basically, to some degree, um, numbed down a little bit the senses of domestic animals. Not that they're just totally equally wonderful, and I have dogs, and I've had cats, and I love them as, as much. But there's something extra about a wild animal that awakens you and makes you more alive.
0: You know, there, there. I don't know if I've told this story publicly before, but one day I was walking back from getting the mail and a walking through a forest, and suddenly this uh, dog started walking next to me. That was, I don't know how I knew exactly, but it was very clearly either half wolf or half coyote, and the experience of walking next to this animal was profoundly different than yeah. walking next to a dog not next to a domesticated dog yeah. there was something about and i've had the same thing walking next to next to bears that there's this, there's something about the thing for me was that with a with a you know i have four dogs and when we walk it's it's very clear. I determine where we walk, and I, you know, I'm sort of in charge. And they will look to me. Mm-hmm. And this other, it was just so clear that this was an equal who was coming to. Mm. Yes. To, so go ahead, take that wherever you want.
1: That's exactly right. They're they're equal beings. They have to be. Wild animals have to think for themselves. Domestic animals are taken care of. So they don't have to have the senses on full alert and be fully alive all the time. So, uh, yes, they're equals. So I think of every single animal here. Fully equal beings, different beings, like the Henry Beston quote, you know, equal beings on this journey of life with us with their own intelligences, their own way of understanding things. But the intelligence is there. And, uh, and independence. Can-
0: so, I want to come back to to a bit more basic stuff about earth fire in a moment with just like more of the animals who either are there or have been there. But before that, I want to go a little bit further with this question of of I think about this constantly about how how we're similar to bears or wolves, and also completely different in that how different the world would be if your sense of smell is a hundred times stronger than it is for a dog, for bears, for example, and how different the world would be if you weigh 500 pounds and you can run up a tree as fast as you can run on the ground, and just how, how different the world would be if you I don't know. Enjoy eating insects, or you know, whatever. whatever, Or eating grass, or, or you know, whatever differences we want to talk about. Or same with trees or anything else. Can you just talk about that? Highlight for a moment again, both the similarity and difference. That there's one more thing. There's somebody called it. I don't remember who, but some phenomenologist or something called it the shock of the other, which is when you realize how very different they are. But again. You know we share the language of mammal, but we don't share the language of human, for example. Um, but we we're still mammals, but then they are radically different i'm I'm just rambling. go take this anywhere you want.
1: I don't know how far how much I can offer in that um, a badger loves to dig that's that's its universe. every time you see a badger this there's a Mount Vesuvius. I had a badger once, and I had him in a small, her, actually in a small area, because I was building a larger area for her. And the construction was bringing rocks and soil right around the edge of of her enclosure at that time. And she was able to start to bring them in. And that badger was singing. She was singing. An absolute ecstasy that she was able to do what a badger does. And I think every animal has is, is wired for whatever it's, it's wired for, and that's its passion, and that's its joy in life, and that's its focus. Um, I don't really know how to answer your question about how different it is, because I am not them. Um, well, I think you just sharp, did. There's a sharp intelligence of the wolf and the intense, intense, intense family bonds. Um this passion, intense family bonds. And so you can feel that. And that's very different from a badger, say, who is not. She was very, she was very attached to my partner. She adored him. She would start singing when she saw him too. And she liked people, actually. She would come to greet people. But fundamentally, she was a solitary creature. So there's a universe of solitariness where the focus is on digging and singing. <laughs> And there's the intensity of wolves and their and their social interaction. That's actually their universe more than anything, is the social bonds more than anything. And and you but a bear would be different again. So I can't make a real general statement because every animal is, every species is, has its own different way of seeing the world, like like the wonderful story of the octopus teacher, too, and their and their sensibilities. So there's not one way. The thing I would say most of all is that, as you pointed out, there's something different. And part of that is an absolute independent, which they have to have. How can you survive without independently using intelligence and thinking about how to adapt your your surroundings? And the other thing that is astounding to me, which is going off a little bit, but if I, you can ramble, I can ramble, <laughs> um, is that every animal, every species here, um, we have mammals of the of, um, Yellowstone, Yukon Wildlife Court. Every species we have here wants to connect. If you approach them with respect, they don't want to be left alone. They won't. They won't. They want to be left alone in in their own way, you know. But they want. They're fascinated by us, just like we're fascinated by them. We're all life together. They want to meet. If the person comes with the right energy and they feel safe and the person feels safe. They want to meet, just like this animal that started. Why was he walking next to you? There's a connection that's wanting to be there that we constantly disrupt out of fear or whatever, but it's there.
0: Thank you for that. That's really great. So can you give us an overview of um some of the animals who have um with whom you have lived your life? Um over the past thirty years, which might also be a good introduction to start talking about uh, whispers from the wild too.
1: So, what was your question?
0: The question is: Can you can you give us an overview of some of the uh, animals with whom you've shared your life over the past thirty years, leading toward uh, then talking about the the book?
1: It's hard to give an overview in a short period of time. It'll there take a... It'll
0: take a half hour to do it. It was,
1: was Pimpernel the Coyote. Um, she was a rescue, but very young. She came from a den that was going to be poisoned, um, and we noticed that she was failing. She was very young, and she she was starving. To, starving. She couldn't get any food. It was a long, complicated thing where we discovered that she had a um, There was a ligament at the base of her esophagus that hadn't released. I guess genetically it releases at a certain time and it never released. So she had something at the bottom of her esophagus that was the size of a pinhole. When we finally discovered what the problem was, shortly before she would have passed away, I just started her feeding her chicken soup drop by drop by drop. And one day I was holding her and holding her upright, trying to get stuff down. And she just, we had another coyote. That she was very annoyed at being in the same house and she leapt out of my arms and grabbed a chicken leg that that coyote had and swallowed it. and i said you know what i guess she's fine so she recovered completely the rest of her life she was plump but the care that we had to give her at the beginning and the absolute trust that was formed because it was life or death and we were there for her um, formed a bond that was probably not that typical between coyote and humans, but she wanted to greet all the humans that came. Um, and it was just an intense bond. And she her, her personality just blossomed. She was like an expansive extrovert. And then we had another coyote um, who was the most delicate, tender, fragile creature. Uh, completely different. Um And so with five coyotes, we had five totally different personalities. And that's true of all the species we've had here. Two bear brothers, totally different. Seven wolf puppies, totally different. Once you get to know them, of course, you don't see the differences. You don't see those elements if you just see a wolf, you know, or you just see them in a zoo or whatever. We spend time with them, dramatically different personalities. And the other another element is that they change over time, just like we do. They may go through periods of shyness. They may go through periods of fear. They may go through periods of being social. Um, that, I know this can sound really weird, but some of us, as we get older, just go into old age, kind of thinking about our physical comfort and those kinds of things, some of us, seem to develop more spiritually as we get older. Same thing with the animals. In the book I have stories of a wonderful wolf I loved, who was the first one. She would we, she would let like, we brought her into the cabin because we thought she was dying. She was seventeen. And then she discovered that a cabin had couches and heated floors and refrigerators that had ham in it. <laughs> and she came alive and she lived way longer. Like like another year because life is just so good, but she was not, I would not call her a spiritual being. She was reminded me of old, an old person that you have in your house who stomps around with a cane, very stubborn, going, going where they want to go and doing what they want to do. That was one wolf, and another wolf from the same pack I could only say developed into what almost felt like an ethereal, ethereal spiritual being. So Spending time with the animals, it seemed like they they have all the same other than obviously our capacity to do math and our intellectual capacity and all that, which is not no small thing. Um, they seem to be the same as us in their passions, in their jealousies, in their, um, what happens when, when you allow them to, when they begin to trust. We have one bear here, um, Teton Totem. Um, who became nearly paralyzed. He couldn't walk. He was dragging himself on his butt. And the vet said, put him down. What are you going to do with a thousand pound grizzly bear? And I said, no way in hell. There's a light in his eyes and I'm not going to do it. And I called a friend of mine, Penelope Smith, who had met him and said, I was thinking nutrition. I didn't know what. I can't put him down. You've met him. You think alternatively. What can you do? And she said, let me see. And this was a thousand miles away, though she had met him, and she started doing energy work with him long distance. Now, I came, I grew up with a hardcore science background. My father was a brilliant hardcore scientist. My degree was in biology from Cornell, and I was I saw things rounded, and I did not want to believe anything just because I wanted to believe it. I only wanted to believe things if they're actually true. But she started working with him long distance and called and asked how he's doing. And I said, you know what? He actually dragged himself over to the pool and dropped one of his hind legs into the pool and started to move it like doing hydrotherapy. Um, Maybe it's coincidence, Penelope, but that's what happened after you said you did whatever you were going to do. And over a period of two months, that bear healed completely. And he went to hibernation. And I was panicked. I thought he's going to, you know, he's going to get arthritis. Who knows what he's going to be like when he came out. And when he came out, he was utter sweetness. No problem walking, lived, um, able to stand fully up on his spine. Um, the the medical things that she said, she could feel how how um, the, that part wasn't mysterious. She said she could feel how his vertebrae was out, and uh, the space between was crushed, and that she gave him an image. Of what was wrong because she felt it herself and gave him a clue about how he could move himself to try to put it back in, which apparently he did. Uh, I have medical backup for these stories um, the vet coming to see the x rays, all that stuff. And he walked for the rest of his life. So that. Was one aspect of it. I've many stories like that because the animals, the wild animals, have such a capacity to, to heal. I really like to use Western medicine on them because it's too invasive, and they're so responsive to energy stuff. Obviously, because they have to be. But the other element of that story was that he became sweet. He was an ordinary bear before that, and then he became sweet. The best I can say, there's an expression in his eyes. And we hold retreats here, not that many because I don't want to overwhelm the animals. But we hold retreats, and people would come and meet him. I wouldn't say anything about it. They would just come and meet him, and time, many times they burst into tears. They couldn't quite explain it, except something had happened between him and them. He had transmitted something, and they burst into tears. Again, I had nothing to do with this. I didn't prepare them anyway because I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't burst into tears when I saw him. Um, so there's that, there's that shift as they get old, there's a shift when they're connected with another, the cougar that's on the picture of, of the copy, um, on the cover of the book, uh, of Windwalker the cougar, um, he was, he was, something happened where he felt connected to, connected. And again, there was this dramatic shift from, you see the pictures in the book of him as a young cougar, you would not want to meet him in the woods. Gorgeous, aggressive male, totally shifted, becoming so sweet that people could surround him and pet him and um, et cetera. So the whole, there's so many levels when you begin to spend time with the animals. Um, You see their cuteness. I mean, two of our bear brothers, one of them was a little more assertive than the other. And we had to be really careful about giving them treats because one bear would steal the other's treats. And you'd see the first bear, Huckleberry Bear Bear, try to hide his pie behind his paw. Well, and then made, knowing that Major Bear was going to eat faster and come and steal his pie. Um, it's just uh, incredible intelligence, the adaptive intelligence you see. I don't know if I'm answering your question really or not. Um, That's
0: yeah. great. There's two possible directions. One would be some more of these great stories. Another one would be, uh, in addition to people bursting into tears at that particular bear's sweetness, I think that there is, for me at least, uh, I think we have, we collectively have a... So I'm going to go off on something for a second, which is, we, I wrote a book about how zoos are not good, and one of the arguments for zoos is that we have to, is that is that they introduce people to wild animals, and the concern, the and there are all sorts of problems with the zoos themselves, but the but what I want to get to here is there is this huge sense of homecoming when we actually do see, when we do encounter Mm. a wild animal because we are so... Another way to say this is that I was reading a book a couple years ago about what California was like prior to conquest, and if you were near water, you would probably see a grizzly bear every 15 minutes. Mm. And so seeing a grizzly bear would be... I don't know, as often as seeing an ant, you know, it's like, it's, mm-hmm. or it's, I mean, I don't, I don't see mice every 15 minutes. And so fortunately, um, um, and I, anyway, so I think we have this huge deficit of not encountering Yes. animals. And so I yeah. think some of that, I mean, I wasn't there, but I think some of that tear, some of the tears, could be his sweetness himself that or that particular bear's sweetness, and I think some of it could also be this homecoming of simply seeing a wild animal, and especially a wild animal who is is reasonably happy.
1: I think that's entirely possible. I, sweetness is only part of the word, something else was happening i I thought of it as a kind of a transmission like um, but your explanation is equally good. So
0: are there, do you have, uh, can you tell another story or two about a different, okay, so you've had bears and wolves and at least one badger. And can you talk about any, Yeah, I mean, if you want another wolf, that's fine too, or coyotes. Um, Do you have any other stories you want to share? I I love these stories. I'll
1: tell you a story about a black bear and maybe a story about a fox. Um, the black bear story was we had two black bears that were brothers one who stole the other's food but they also slept together arm in arm Um, and one of the one of the bears passed away and it was a year or so and we had a retreat uh, of artists students and one of them was drawn to Huckleberry Bear Bear And she asked if she could sit with him. Now, this isn't set up so a human being is safe, obviously. Um, And she started sitting with him and then started feeling really sad. This is what she told us later. She started feeling really sad and said, that's weird. And then she said she felt tears were rolling down her face. She said, this is really weird. And then... um, so she felt the tears were rolling down his face, and then she heard—not really words, you know—like we can get images in our head that are sort of like words. I um, I miss my brother. And she said to herself, "But I don't have a brother." This didn't make sense. She wrote this up all for us uh, later. Um, and that evening by the campfire, she timidly said, "Did did Huckleberry have a brother?" And we said, "Yes." And it just blew her away because she was completely unprepared. She was an a artist from L.A. She hadn't really connected with nature in any real way, Though she generally liked animals. She just had this thing. She was open, and she had this thing kind of like hit her. And there's no, I like this story because there's no explanation for it other than she didn't know that his, he had a brother. She didn't know that he had a brother that died. How did that happen? What was happening in that communication? with A bear, was he sharing his grief? Was he just exuding it and she picked it up? A, a, hu- a bear was connecting with a human to share his grief. And as the were running down her face, she said, I, uh, they were there for three weeks. She said, I'm gonna come and visit you every single day as long as I'm here. And she said, he turned around and went back into his den. So the implications of these kinds of things when you spend time with the animals, it's just, and I've been doing this thirty years, and every it, it's never it never stops growing. just like in a real, a good relationship, you never stop seeing new things and new aspects in the other in the other being. as they as they evolve too, you evolve separately and together. That's a bear story. There's another uh, a fox story because you wanted a different species. There's this wonderful fox called Renard. Someone called us to say that there's a baby fox at the, in front of a den and the mother's ignoring him and we just can't see him starve to death. Can you, can you take him? So we took him and he seemed a little strange um, and he wasn't eating. We tried a nice big fat juicy blackberry and apparently that triggered something in his brain and he started to eat and he started to thrive. And after... And we started to use him for education because he was very social, and we we'd take him to for, um to if we did a a group somewhere, he would go and meet each person in the circle, and he'd look at their shoes and they'd look at their pocketbooks and he'd look up at them and greet each person in 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 um in the circle sequentially, and of course they'd be totally charmed. Um, and then one day he had a epileptic fit. And we realized why the mother probably had let him go. And we managed him on in just the same way you would handle a human being. And we finally found the right dose where he was not having seizures or um or totally out of it either. And we did those wonderful walks all summer long. just wonderful walks, um, joyous that he this, these stories are in the book. And there are photographs of all these animals in the book, and you can see the aliveness of Renard. And one day I looked out, and he was having a seizure. It was a big one, and he was just gone, dead. And I was devastated because he was so alive. He used to race around the floor, and then race around the middle of the buildings, and like, and like he had no, no gravity. Um, and I spoke to a Nellope, actually, who's an animal communicator and a friend of mine, and just because I, in grief, I called to her. And she said, from her point of view, that he was an angel sent to Earth to live that vibrantly for those months that he was alive and share his foxness. And that his job was done. In one of my essays at the end of it, makes me want to cry thinking of just the beauty of it. Um, I talk about winter and beauty and et cetera, and going out for a walk and that I see the dancing play of light that is Fox out there. That's what they are.
0: Thank you for that. Can you, can you, you, you've mentioned uh, humans a few times. Can you, uh, how does, how does that work? I mean, do you, do you, how does it work that that humans end up interacting with your, with the non-humans with whom you live?
1: That depends entirely on the animal and the, um, and the species and the person and the age of the animal. <laughs> um, we have gardens where the animals are out to play and people are, are stand, can stand at the fence and the animals come to greet them and meet them. That's one reason I won't have many people here because I I want every interaction to be meaningful, not just looking at the animals. Um, like with Renard, he was a young fox and there wasn't any danger. Um, so it it depended on the animal. Obviously, so, we don't have people in with bears.
0: So, but do you have like you said that that. That woman was there for three weeks. So do you have like retreats at your? Uh, yeah. That, that's sort of what I was asking is, I mean, I, I, there was never any doubt that you were going to protect the animals and to protect the humans. I, my, my question was sort of technically, how does that work? Does like twice a year do you have retreats where people come or how, do, how does any of that work?
1: Someone asks us for a retreat or I find someone who I trust. We will set up a retreat. Every retreat is custom. There's no particular schedule. It's based on my feeling of the the ethics, integrity um, of the person who wants to lead the retreat, if they want to lead it or co-lead it. Um, So if someone is interested, they can contact me and we can potentially set up a retreat. And it could be so custom visits I'll only do for a couple of hours. and I send out information first saying, this is who we are and this is what you can expect. I don't love doing them because there's not enough time. It takes time to connect truly, but I will do them if the, if the field is right. And other retreats we've had like from Thursday night to Sunday, Friday night to Sunday, or like this particular one, it was three weeks. So everything is custom, but we are open to the possibility of it.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to what you just said about, um, I mean, even with a human, you can't know that much in a couple three hours. And that's, and, and that's even when you both speak the same, not only speak human, but you both speak English, you both speak Spanish or something. It's still, you barely know anything. And how much more so when, you know, neither one, when, when one doesn't you know, I've lived on the same land for twenty, almost twenty-five years now, and there every day I still see new things, and um, I still see. I mean, this is pretty silly, and and goes to my complete inability to do um. Uh, what's the word? Uh, when you. When you differentiate between species, what's that? What's that generally called? Um, just identification. Um, for years, for twenty-two years of the twenty-three years of the twenty-five years I've lived here, I thought I lived in a redwood, red cedar, uh, Doug fir forest, and it ends up half of the trees I was calling Doug fir were actually Sitka spruce. And it's like that took me twenty-five years, and I walk through this every single day. And that's on an extremely super... Doug furs don't look anything like sicker spruce. But how much more so? I mean, you can't learn anything in two hours. You can have this... Oh, wait. want to say one time. more thing. One more thing, which is Find Deloria years ago, I interviewed him, and he said that his students at the University of Colorado would go for a hike and, in, the, in the Rockies, and they would come back and they say, oh, I had this great nature experience. He said, no, you had an aesthetic experience. To have a real experience of nature, you've got to live there for... And you've got to be in it day after day. It's like having a relationship. I talked to somebody for two hours. Oh, we have a great relationship. No, you had a great conversation.
1: There's two sides to that, though. Remember, you just said earlier, you had this experience of this dog dog true. world for dog coyote. And it was just brief. And it stayed with you for the rest of your life. And it was profound. And you learned something. So it's it's not true that you can't learn anything if if someone came here for one minute and looked in the eyes of a wolf and left, they'd be different. It's quite different from having a, the depth of connection that we're talking about that takes years. So they're all valid. So That's a great point. If, so what I do in a, in the short business is people are blown away. If something is different. Now, whether it stays with them, what they do with it, it's another matter. But the the sheer physicality, something happens when a physical being meets another physical being, and it is an exchange, and you learn something. You get a sense of bareness very quickly. Now, the full sense of bareness takes forever, but something valuable happens.
0: What's the... um, Sorry to keep doing a catalog, but you've had... The animals you've described. Have you had other types of animals too?
1: My life, I've had lots of animals, and loved all of them: dogs, and cats, and parrots, and etc. A snail. Um, yeah, that was unintentional, but that was wonderful. That surely opened you up to see the joy that a snail got out of life. You know, one of the underlying themes of the book is life is absolutely miraculous and being alive itself is a, as a celebration it just is what happens after you're born i don't know um whether you continue it or not but just just the burst that happens when something comes alive being a seed or a baby you know the wonder we see in a human baby's face or a puppy whatever the the joy of becoming embodied before what life itself happens to you, just life itself is just like a burst of celebration burst of creative energy and it's available to us. Um, we do everything we can as human beings for whatever reason, I don't know. And it's not deliberate to distract ourselves, get involved in human stuff, attend to our own little universes, of problems and worries, when we're surrounded by this miracle and joy and wonder. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is not just my love of animals and wanting people to, to, to know what they were for our sake as humans, but also for the animal's sake, so we save land for them. We don't just think, oh, it's just a bear. Um, No, it's a living, breathing, intelligent, creative, fascinating being that wants to live and has a right to live. Um, The other reason I wrote it was to expand our sense of what's available for us and how that heals us and how if if we focus more on the beauty around us, which does exist in all the hideousness, including all the hideousness now, Life itself is still going on, and exquisite and beautiful in the forests, etc. If we focused on that, we might make different decisions and operate differently, and certainly feel better. Anyway, my says, with all, of, uh, and I've not had an easy life either, so I'm not saying it from that point of view. But being alive is a freaking celebration.
0: It has to be, or what's what's the point of anything?
1: <laughs> it just is. We, we just don't tune to it. And, and the reason I wrote the book was to help us to begin to tune to it, see what else is around us besides the miracle of a dog or a cat or our houseplants or a garden.
0: And I know you've said this, but I, I want you to sort of say it again: that what is the, how do or what is the relationship between interacting with wild non-humans and remembering that life is a celebration.
1: I'm not sure I understand the question.
0: It seems to me that, and from everything you've said so far, that um, what I know from my own experience of interacting with wild beings is that they help me to remember that celebration that you're talking about.
1: Other things, they are independent, like I mentioned earlier. They have to be, they have to be strictly, not strictly, uh, that's the right word really, deeply independent. Each being has to look after itself and they have to think for themselves in their own way, in an octopus way or a mouse way or a bear way or a wolf way. They have to think for themselves to to, to secure their own survival. So they're independent. And so when we meet them, we're meeting another independent being. It's almost like a party. (laughs) Like we're surrounded by all these wonderful presences. All it's like a a symphony. All these different notes. You know, there's a bear note and there's a wolf note and there's and there's a specific bear note and a specific wolf note. We're living in this this uh, this harmony of resonances and intelligences, um, all somehow managed by something greater than us, the life force itself, whatever you want to call it. We're living within that. It's like a frigging party. I mean, I look at the tree outside, they're thriving. Um, and, and the energetic exchange that happens, um, it nourishes us. It's like there's an exchange. If I just look at the tree out there, there's an exchange. I admire the tree. I'm fond of the tree. Um, whether it knows it or not, I don't know. But it becomes an, when you spend time with another being, an exchange happens. It's almost like the exchange of um, being renewed by new energy, by new nutrition. You get a little bit of its energy and we get a little give a little of ours and we nourish one another.
0: So I'm thinking two things. One of them is that Vine Deloria also said that a way to look at the purpose of life is that we are part of a giant symphony, as you were saying. That's what made me think of it. And that one of the things we're supposed to do with our lives is to figure out how to play our proper role in this symphony and what is, what is our role and how do we play it? And that was one thing I was thinking. And the other thing I was thinking is that there's something visceral to me, even if I don't particularly like the song, there is something profound that happens when I hear a group of humans singing together. Yes. That. Yes. Can just make me weep.
1: Yes. It's a beauty that could be.
0: And I'm thinking, I'm putting those two together, that if there is this beauty that can make one weep from hearing a bunch of humans sing together, how how much more so for this, if if we allow ourselves to re-enter this symphony of of that includes foxes and coyotes and Sitka spruce and huckleberries and bears named Huckleberry, and you know how how much more so, you know. You and I have spoken, not here, but elsewhere, about how this culture is you know, destroying so much. And I think we both obviously care profoundly for the actual destruction of the wild and want to stop that. And in addition, we're costing not only everybody else, but we're costing ourselves our own participation in that tremendous song or tremendous party.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, and yes, it's one of the things that keeps me alive and going. Is that I'm tuning to that nourishes me.
0: You know, there's a there's a, a a story I've told publicly. I don't remember if if you and I have talked about this. Where my mom had a long relationship with a bear called Mama, and then she Mama disappeared for eight years. hadn't We didn't know if she was dead. Didn't know she was just gone. And then my mom uh was dying of pancreatic cancer. And the week before she entered terminal delirium, uh she looked out the window and mama was sitting on the porch. And she sat there for the for the next week until my mom entered terminal delirium and then she left and I haven't seen her since. And yeah. I think I know it sounds all cosmic and woo-woo, as you know, some of your stories did too, but that's also That's the world we live in.
1: There's a question. There are other levels of reality where, you know, our senses are actually designed to limit what we take in. Um, So for survival. And we don't, we're actually blocked off a bit from tuning to these other realities. Why? I don't know. It's the way our brains are formed, our civilization, but the animals aren't blocked off from it. So it's very dangerous in both directions. Because to go woo-woo is awful, because it's distorting the truth for your own emotional reasons. But that to go the other direction, say there's nothing other than what hard science says is true, is to limit the possibilities of our understanding what might be.
0: I love that and i i keep thinking too about how honeybees perceive the world and that's they uh how they see and they don't see um red red is black to them and on the other hand they see ultraviolet and so when they look at a flower the flower looks radically different to them and That doesn't mean there's like little arrows pointing to where they should go or little like runway lights or something toward aiming toward where they're supposed to to get the nectar. And we can't see that, but we're not designed to see that. I'm just saying the same thing you did in a different way. Right. Um, And that's just on a purely physical level. And same with bears. Bears can smell so much better than we can.
1: There are some people who are more tuned to those things than others. I'm not actually one of them, but there are people who really are tuned to other realms more, just just as part of human variation. But most of us aren't, and everything in our culture takes us away from that. But I I wanted to go back to something that was so powerful that you said, how when you hear humans singing in harmony, it makes you want to weep. The sheer beauty of what could be of the possibilities of how we could be interacting, the joy and the, when you say, how should we be on this earth? Um, I think if we are in a right frame of mind, it writes a good word. Um, the forest welcomes us. We're part of it. And to some extent, ideally we would be animals and plants would lead in one way. We would lead in another and the whole great evolution of, of life. And Every now and then we see what could be, and then the destruction, because we get lost in aggression and all the um, self-esteem and territoriality and all that stuff. That's also animal. Um, But one of the reasons I wrote the book, too, was to share, try to help remind us, myself as well, all the time, because I get lost in what it takes to run an organization. Um, Remind us all the time of... um, Possibilities, at least even if we never get there, if as our species we can even imagine the kind of beauty of living in harmony on the earth, our earth, maybe in another planet somewhere else, that energy will take off, you know. But if we don't even imagine it, I shouldn't say imagine it because I think it's true, but if we don't even have the idea of it, we can't work towards it. And who knows what's going to happen with us and, and, what forces there are working on us, but at least we can work towards something beautiful and hopeful. Because at least we can do that. Not fake, not fake beauty and hope. But life is incredibly resilient. And the and I want to mention again that my experience is that if you if you go quietly and with a with a good energy life wants one of the things I wrote in the book was life exalts in life life and just wants to connect with life is part of what life is somehow we got astray with our aggression but it doesn't mean we still don't have those other elements
0: that would be a great note to end on but I want to come back to the snail for a second because it's I'm so fond of that snail it's so easy to think about, even if one does acknowledge that non humans have personalities, it's so easy to then presume that um, this only applies to those who more closely resemble us. And I want to tell a quick story, and then I, I want you to talk about snail joy for a second. And that's. The quick story is maybe a month ago, I was outside at night and I saw a slug with a snail underneath it. And it, I didn't understand what was happening. I thought they might be fighting or something, except neither one is a predator. The, the, the snail, the banana slug were not predators. And it was a, a sidewinder snail who is also not a predator. Sidebound snails or something, I don't remember the exact name. Anyway, the point is that the snail was underneath With the slug on top, and it's like, what is the snail doing? And the slug looked sick or something. Don't understand. The point is, I went out like an hour later, and what was actually what actually happened is the slug was dead, and the snail was flipping the slug over so it could get at the underbelly because it can't eat through the mantle. And when you think about it, that's a pretty complex cognitive process that the snail has to use his, his, her, its, because they're hermaphrodites has to use the shoulders to pop the snail over. That's, that's a complex thought. And I think we give short shrift to little beings is the whole point of my story. And, uh, so, you know, it's easy to think, Oh, a snail doesn't, you know, a snail can't feel joy. So I want you to, 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 to share the other perspective another perspective on that
1: yeah, but just a comment about your story. How can any living being survive if it doesn't tune into its environment, which is the definition of intelligence? We just assume that because they don't have our intelligence, they're not intelligent in their snail way or their what they the type of intelligence they need. So I don't know if you'd think of it as a thought, but it is a comprehension and understanding leading to an action. What happened with your snail. So my snail, so, uh, when I first moved out west, I took a job in a counseling center, um, and I was in a tiny cubicle, and there was one tiny window high up that you couldn't see out of, and it drove me absolutely crazy. I just couldn't stand being in there. So I, I went to a pet store that had fish that they were selling to feed to snakes or whatever else, and I got myself a goldfish in a little bowl, and I got a little plant for it, and unbeknownst to me, along with the plant came a tiny little brown snail. So I was in this cubicle looking at being that existed in between my my counseling sessions, etc. and I saw this little snail. Um, and I would watch it and it would come down the plant very slowly in snail fashion and come to the bottom of the middle of the bowl and extend its foot and go across the whole bottom of the bowl, come to the side and then go up the curved glass with its foot, the top of the water, where the water tension line is, then it would travel upside down with its long foot on the top of the water line, right to the middle of the bowl, then it would pull in its its foot and glide ever so gently down to the bottom, reminding me of a paraglider, and he would do, or she would do this over and over and over, down, over, up, and all the way down again, and it just Felt like it was having fun, and I don't know why it wouldn't be having fun. And you know, you hear stories of buffalo running down a hill and then skidding out onto a frozen lake, or you see wolves or bears in the wild skidding down snowbanks, or a raven on the top of a roof skidding down a, a a an icy roof. That's why I say life is a celebration. Being embodied, physically embodied, is a a privilege, an incredible privilege, and a joy. Apart from all the other stuff, there's that element in it. And so the end of my book is, um, life is worthy of celebration.
0: So thank you for all that. last thing is, um, how do people get a hold of your book? Or how do people find out more about uh, the Earthfire Institute?
1: Well, we have a big website, earthfireinstitute.org. And the book is for sale on Amazon. Whispers from the Wild An Invitation, because there are other books with a similar name. You do have to put in my my author name to find it easily, Eirich, E-I-R-I-C-H.
0: Great. Um, well, thank you. I would like to thank you for being on the program and thank you for your work in the world. And I would like to thank guests or thank my listeners for listening. My guest today has been Susan Eirich. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.